Hello and welcome to Shades and Layers. This is episode one of season four. I'm your host, Kutwanus Kosana Ritchie. Our first guest for the season is Dr. Omolara Thomas Wemodimo, CEO and founder of Melanin and Medicine. It's an organization dedicated to helping black women to bring their vision of health justice to communities of color. She is a pediatrician by training and also co-founder at Strong Children Wellness, where she continues to break new ground in the provision of primary care for children. Omolara grew up in a Nigerian household on the east coast of the United States. She frequently visited Nigeria with her family during school holidays, where she was struck by the difference in wealth as well as the opportunities available in the two countries. So these impressions, coupled with having a nurse for a mom, sparked her interest in healthcare, justice and equity. So today, she is a social entrepreneur who empowers other black women to launch their social enterprises in the healthcare space and other industries. I hope our conversation will inspire you to find the intersection of all the things that make you thrive at work and in life, and more importantly, that you will take action. Stay with me and enjoy Dr. Omolara Thomas Uemodimo's story. I would say that I am first and foremost, um, at my core, a healthcare advocate. Mm -hmm. Uh, I choose to do that. I've chosen to basically advocate for health equity in different ways. So initially as a pediatrician in its Mm -hmm. most traditional sense, and then as a public health professional, moving into systems change. And then I would say um, right now, really as a proponent and a coach for social entrepreneurship, um, particularly for healthcare businesses that are really motivated around helping marginalized communities and helping recenter those that have been have been underserved, neglected, and disenfranchised. And I do that through hoping to coach and support more Black women to mm-hmm. own and lead their own businesses and on their own terms to transform healthcare. And so that is the work that I do. And I'm also one of those social entrepreneurs mm-hmm. doing that um, as the founder of Strong Children Wellness. And our our drop in the bucket in working on health equity as well. So tell me about uh, the beginning of uh, melanin medicine. Yeah, so it's interesting. Melanin and medicine, honestly, was not melanin and medicine. It was super mom rehab. So all of my, (laughs) initially, I know. That's a lot. Exactly. And so ultimately, melanin and medicine was not even on my radar until May of 2019. Mm -hmm. Um, At that time, I pretty much had actually um, took a break from clinical medicine because I had the signs and symptoms of burnout. I was Um, In the midst of academia as an associate professor teaching, I was, um, as a pediatrician, taking care of um, children and families in poverty. Um, And then I also was running a global health program um, that was sending training residents to go to other countries um, to really serve um, marginalized communities. And I was running two research projects. And so ultimately, in May of 2019, I actually over the course of a week, um, lost the ability to walk and ended up hospitalized. And during that time, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and mm. autoimmune yeah. brain disorder. Yeah. During that time as well, my new neurologist told mm. me that um, after doing a, a history on me, told me that if I continue <laughs> with 
the, the, the path of my career in the way that it's going, that I'd probably see her multiple times and probably not regain the ability to walk. And so I spent four months doing physical rehab, trying to relearn to walk, but also had to figure out a life rehab. And um, the, the nail in the coffin was the fact that when I returned and, and kind of thought about, okay, what's the way that I could consolidate my work to to try to be less stressful and really didn't get the answer that I wanted from my um, my current employer and had to make a decision on can I create the space that I would love to work in on my own and do the work on my own. I initially doubted it and then I decided to say yes. And during that process, I was detailing that process at while I was um, on leave through a Facebook group. I was basically understanding that there were many Black women, um, particularly those who were professionals, and and seeing that many of us were having higher rates of autoimmune disorders, higher rates of cardiovascular disease, higher rates of infertility, and recognizing that there was a pattern called weathering that was happening where we were dealing with insurmountable societal stress, um, as well as discrimination. And understanding that that actually has a biological effect on our bodies. It causes us to age faster. It causes our our systems to be become dysregulated and not wanting any other woman mm, <laughs> who is working, and yeah. working as hard as we all do as Black women to have that be her legacy. And so I wanted to start a group and I did in Facebook and then it ultimately became a podcast. Um, over time, I realized that I wanted to serve women who were in the healthcare space because I believe our jobs were trained to disregard ourselves in medicine um, and put everything in everyone else first and then do that again as Black women. And mm-hmm. so I started Melanin Medicine and Motherhood as a work-life integration support program. And as I was taking care of more and more women, I realized that many of us wanted to pivot. We had dreams. We had ideas of what we wanted to do, but just felt scared to do it on our own. And as I shifted, I decided I would support other women to help them learn how to shift through the means of social entrepreneurship. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty scary push into entrepreneurship. Uh, <laughs> but of course, uh, you know, when I listen to you talk, there's a lot of stuff that you were doing. Which of those skills have helped you to uh, make this into a viable organization and to be of service to the community that you're speaking about? Yeah, so I think a few things. I think that a lot of us think when we go into entrepreneurship, it has to be this like amazingly like innovative idea. Um, I think for me, I've been very much a proponent of purpose led entrepreneurship mm-hmm. and Leave looking at Silicon your Valley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not I'm not that one. I'm not that type, but <laughs> but um in doing that, one of the things that I did during my leave, and um I think that's a huge piece, which is stillness. I think many of us are used to doing and not being. Mm. And I think we lose sight of what it is, why we're here, because we're just doing all of the things. So I think first and foremost, having that space of stillness and, and then reflection to start to look back on where were the times when I felt most meaning in my life? What what do I love? What brings me joy? And as we look at that, we can find those pockets. And usually there's a theme. Usually there's a theme to what we find personally meaningful. And what I think a lot of times we need to do is also look at what we find personally meaningful and then look at what we've been told, right? Are our talents. Like mm-hmm. usually 
there are things that are in what we call our zone of genius that Gay Richards calls it, Gay Hendricks, excuse me, calls it in his book, The Big Leap. But um, what is it that everyone is always like, oh my gosh, how do you do that? What, like, it's so amazing. And when we can find that intersection between what we find meaningful and what we're, we're geniuses at, or our zone of genius. Um, and then the other piece is our vision. What would we regret not seeing, not doing, not becoming, not creating? And when we put those pl- things together, there's often this small but mighty space that where all three collide. Mm. And in that really was the idea for me. That was where I found um, supporting Black women, particularly those who look like me, knowing that I had a long track record of doing that in my uh, career, in my mm-hmm. job before entrepreneurship, understanding that that was a place where people always were like, oh my gosh, this is so great. Thank you for this strategy. And also recognizing that I was really interested in making an impact in healthcare and health equity and realizing that having these women be more empowered, be more emboldened was a pathway to doing that. And that was kind of where the intersection Mm. happened. Yeah, I I find it very interesting that you mentioned stillness because, you know, Mm. you'll go on the internet and say, identifying your passion and, you know, how to follow your passion. And, you know, it's just presented as this magical thing that happens (laughs) after you've, you know, written down uh, these four steps by this blogger and... (laughs) Correct, correct, four yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you've put together an actual course that uh, people can follow. And, yeah. um, you know, can you tell me about the outcomes of that over the past? Is it two years you've been offering? Yeah. Yeah. So initially we um, so it's funny. We started with a workshop. It's a free workshop. I don't do it anymore because I am tired. But that <laughs> workshop um, we now have inside of our community is called Pivot Into Your Purpose. And it mm-hmm. takes us through a process of doing that. Right. And really, then women start to now become almost consumed with, oh, my God, this thing that that I just came up with and realized is now like, how do I actually move it forward? Right. Mm-hmm. And so you think mm-hmm. that method of meaning and then zone of genius, then your vision, and then also your values. I forgot to mention that, right. which is starting to understand what are the things that are non-negotiable for you in your life. And when you find, and so we help them find that intersection and then start to just basically in the beginning, I think it's just uncovering things that you forgot. Mm-hmm. And then inside of our, we have a course called Change Makers Academy. And in our, in our coursework, there are four big domains to like actually moving that into action, which is the self-discovery, which is that part, right? But right. then also the sk- self-preservation skills of like, how do I make more time for me? How do I um, start to develop routines and and things that allow for me to um, include things like gratitude and meaning and start to like build this space of remembering preserving myself is absolutely core to the impact that I want to make. I, I lean on for that. I, I let heavily on the Ubuntu, you know, Yay, um, my people, <laughs> your people, exactly. And and realizing that is such a I think huge principle in that, and then understanding that the other core domain was support and that many of us mm-hmm. were as black women were just used to doing it alone we see we've seen our mothers and our grandmothers do it and we said well even if i have access to resources i'm going to I'm not 
but yeah. alone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so developing your crew, developing a way to delegate and, and having people who can hold you accountable to the, the vision. And then the last piece was strategy, which is really around, you see the vision, but now let's just chunk it down and start to say, what can we do in the next three months to get us closer to that? And what do we need to say no to in order to mm-hmm. do that? Yes, yes. So those important. are the, yeah, there's a price for everything and we forget that. Yep, yep. <laughs> mm-hmm. You sound very put together. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. Do you want me to get my daughter here and she can tell you how not put together both of them? Like, I know, they can be all- I know we all wing it, but uh, what what have uh, some of the challenges of your, you know, of your transition from being uh, from working and then being forced into this state of stillness and then actually starting the work yeah. of uh, living uh, a balanced life. It's it's all mindset, honestly, for me. I think, you know, I think a lot of us um, put the scene problems, like obstacles, like c- certain things, like the time, I don't have, you know, the money and, and this and everything. But I think it's really a mindset piece. There's another course that I created, which I thought was like amazing, but I don't know. But it's called, mm-hmm. Own, it's called Own Your Power. Mm-hmm. And I've created it because I was recognizing those were challenges for me. Um, and so I wanted to kind of talk through how I've been, you know, I don't say getting over them, but moving through them and then learning how when they come up again to, to move through them again. But Mm. I would say things like letting go of what other people think. I would say things like letting go of our default being exhaustion, right. As a sign of excellence or busy as a badge of honor. Mm. Um, I would say another one was letting go of um, numbing behaviors and like, you know, when things get scary, being like, okay, let me just watch Netflix. Um, that'll <laughs> Or let me just do this instead of like saying, okay, this is going to be uncomfortable and I'm going to be a disaster before I'm the master, right? Mm-hmm. But that's okay. Oh, I'm totally um, stealing that. Disaster right? before you're a master. I love that. <laughs> right? And I think, you know, I think there's a bunch of them, the way that we rely on perfectionism to kind of sure. like keep us away from doing the thing because it's not absolutely perfect. So we're not going to do it. Um, So those I think have been the things that continuously um, trip me up and, you know, really learning how to overcome those. And usually the biggest thing is just action. And like, um, I think putting the vision and the legacy forward, like trying to recenter that rather than focusing on me, because most times that comes from a fear of like, oh, my God, I'm going to be rejected or I'm going mm. to be this or people are going to make fun of me. But when I start to put forward, what is it that this is all for? Then I just move into action and I'm like, OK, we'll figure out but figure it out after. And so I think right. that's been um, really monumental for me in terms of like hiring before I was ready. Right. Quote, right. unquote. Like, I didn't have all the money to hire <laughs> I had some money. So I was like, okay, let's hire. And then let's pray. Um, or, <laughs> you know, or, or um, being able to like create, um, being scared to do a summit or a conference and just being like, okay, these women need it. Let's get started and let's just yeah, do it. And yeah. it might not be amazing the first time, but we're hoping that, you know, mm-hmm. there is going to be some impact. So mm-hmm. So who are your clients and, uh, you know, where are they based? 
Yeah. So I've been happy to say that we've been international. We have mostly, of course, U.S. clients, yeah, but yeah. we've had clients in Australia. Ooh. We have clients that have been live that were living in um, Africa while we were uh, while I've I've been coaching, which is great. I think. Um, my clients are usually, we've expanded. So initially we really honed in on black women physicians because that was the shared experience that mm-hmm. I had. Um, but as we've grown, we realized, like, I realized that that was scratching the surface in terms of the people who we needed to transform healthcare and, um, you know, create more health equitable and just spaces. And we need everyone on deck. So anyone who is a black woman who is interested in creating a social enterprise that um, right. that transforms healthcare and brings more health equity, um, ideally centering marginalized communities, you're 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 part of our bandwagon. Like we want to really support you in taking that idea and then turning it into impact and ensuring that you're getting income and profit and being able to to sustain doing that work so we can touch more lives. Mm. This is Shades and Layers with Kukonos Kosana Ritchie. My guest is Dr. Omolara Thomas Wemodimo, founder of Melanin and Medicine, an organization dedicated to get black women to pivot and create the career, life or business on their own terms. Up next, we get into the details of her organization, the team she works with and what she teaches her students. We also take a deep dive into some of the stumbling blocks to creating an equitable healthcare system in general, but also in particular for American citizens and residents, which uh, was uh, something of interest, particularly during the pandemic, when the differences in access to healthcare were really, really stark. Take a listen. Who's on your team? Yeah, so I have, we are now at four members, additional members in our team. Um, We have our marketing, we're actually adding a fifth one who's our, she's going to be starting January, who is our funding coordinator. So she helps us with um, making sure that our clients in the mastermind um, get, we kind of curate who their ideal funders are, ideal fiscal sponsors are. Mm -hmm. Um, We help them, we have our marketing and sales um, director and she supports us, supports them in helping them kind of craft what their identity looks like online that can bring people and bring more visibility. We have our um, community builder, um, our manager, who just helps us with ensuring that our communities, both in our Facebook group and our um, more private community that we have offline on Mighty Networks for our paying customers, right. that those really um, are not only spaces where they're learning, but spaces where they're networking and actually like really kind of accelerating their progress because they're connect because of the connections. And then we have our ops person in the back who is ensuring that everything is going <laughs> smoothly like and it looks like it's a well-oiled machine even if we're like paddling underwater um but she's working with our systems our emails and making sure that those things are going and our client success coach who mm. helps our keeps our women productive making sure that we're checking in on them keeps them accountable to making sure they're making progress throughout any of our programs mm. how was your passion for social justice and uh, activism born? Yeah, I think um, ultimately it really came from being Nigerian. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that many uh, first generation Americans deal with, of Mm -hmm. course, with having immigrant parents is 
your summers and your trips back home <laughs> where right, you're like, okay. right. <laughs> and I remember seeing my cousins and being like, why are our lives drastically different from a young age and being kind of just bothered by the fact that we are both the same family, same ages, but because of where we live, like our, we have a completely different trajectory and just mm. not liking that at all from mm-hmm. an early age. Mm-hmm. And then really uh, my mom's a nurse and really being intrigued about healthcare care and and understanding I, I felt almost like it was it was an easy palatable way to see the effect of your labor right to like right. helps like treat somebody they get better but I also felt that the place that I really loved about was that you just had intimate conversations like I love being curious and nosy and being able to <laughs> like in that doctor patient relationship being able to like have that trust yeah. where you get to learn so much and I think in that way it allows for you to make an even deeper impact and so that became a space where i wanted everyone to have the same level of access to health providers healthcare and and health outcomes regardless of where they lived who they were what their means were what their educational status was and so i felt that most fervently when i was working abroad and 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 saw those disparities quite um you know large in the many countries that i've worked in in cuba dominican republic or mm-hmm. in south africa in lesotho um in malawi in nigeria mm-hmm. and so um kenya so then I finally wanted realize though in that work that there was a a real um ceiling and 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 that it needed public health to change the systems mm-hmm. that um existed and so very very got pulled into public health work um to complement clinical work and understanding that clinical work can make an impact on individual people, but public health work can really make an impact on systems and populations. Mm-hmm. And then so, and then realizing the way towards changing our systems a lot of times was not solely following the rules. Sure. <laughs> it had to be yeah. disrupting them and, mm-hmm. and sharing loudly and boldly what needed to change, whether that be by creating something new or by doing rallies and 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 going to legislators and um, going on the news and media and talking about it um, and increasing Mm. visibility. And so that, and I would say the space where I started to develop that was really around immigration um, here in the U.S. and really feeling like the immigrant experience in the U.S. was absolutely horrid, especially as the U.S. kind of lives off of this farce of freedom and come and be free. So I, you know, so that and as my parents being immigrants, so that was a place that really I um, jolted my activism. And of course, in 2016, when um, our leadership changed, immigration, really the the attack on immigrants was was really huge. And understanding like as as you were brown or black, like you were in trouble and um, really just trying to kind of think about how that community in particularly w- was extremely marginalized and, yeah. and just felt personally connected. To, so so to what, what are you seeing now as we are in the midst of this crazy pandemic that I yeah. uh, <laughs> yeah. don't know when it will go away, but you know, what, what's, yeah. what are you seeing both in terms of trends, right, of uh, provision of healthcare and also mm-hmm. maybe some of the businesses that are coming out of your um network or your community? Yeah. yeah so, I, I, oh gosh, that's a very big question. But I think <laughs> that, 
I think, Sorry. what is the meaning of life? Um, <laughs> I think that ultimately one of the big things that has been um, particularly pronounced was people seeing the cracks in our healthcare system yeah. and like, yeah. and like a magnifying glass, right? Mm-hmm. When understanding that we knew as, especially those of us of color who mm-hmm. are practicing the healthcare system and predominantly take care of communities of color, we already knew that like this healthcare system was basically, you know, just filled with holes, right? But then when now, when there now was this crisis, it really allowed for us to see kind of in a in a hor- horrifically lethal way what the ramifications of not addressing Black and brown communities and equity, um, what that led to, which of course was disproportionate death and morbidity amongst our people. And ultimately, I think in this pandemic, we also realized that in order to get to people and fix those, that it wasn't going to happen in a clinic or a hospital. Mm-hmm. It needs the health care, like healthcare needed to come out of the walls, right? And right. needed to come into communities and needed to be fervent in terms of not just saying, okay, I'm going to solely focus on treatment, diagnosis, medical conditions, but I'm going to use the opportunity because of the intimacy of healthcare to identify what are the other social issues, right, that are leading to disease, leading to um, morbidity, whether that be food insecurity or housing insecurity. And, and it allowed us to see the connection, what we call the social determinants of health. And so I think now the what's coming out a lot of times is more programs. I wouldn't say this is new, but I'd say more visibility and more funding for programs that cause a connection or, or help to connect mental health with physical health, with social services, understanding that it's more of a whole person type of intervention mm-hmm. and also healthcare that decides to move out of typical spaces. So some of my clients, they're working on um, work where one of my clients is working on a healthcare practice that is going to be based within churches mm-hmm. and really like nice. just saying, why does it like, where are the people in need and how can we modify or recreate where healthcare can be delivered in order to get closer to those spaces and to those people and the places that they trust. Right. Exactly. Because you're not going to go to someone you don't trust with your health. Right. Right. And what's, I mean, what is with the American resistance to universal public health? I don't get it. Okay. Wait, but I thought you said this is only a certain time. We don't have, uh, we don't have (laughs) dates, right? To talk about this. No. Um, Don't get me started as a global health (laughs) professor. That was like, as a global health professor and like seeing all of the different models that exist for, at least getting closer to universal health care in so many other countries and America, of course, being the one that will spend the most money for the like <laughs> the, the, some of the worst mortality rates that we've seen across mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. industrialized nations. So I would say what is up with America? I think that ultimately until I thought the pandemic would be a reckoning um, to for people to say we need this. But I think that, you know, it's really hard for for our, our culture is very individualistic, right? It's always yeah. been like, yeah. and I think that in many of the countries that are utilizing universal health care, there is, and those are, you know, many of our countries, um, you know, black and brown, mm. there's a collective collectivism, right? And how culturally 
move and operate, Mm -hmm. right? And when there isn't that backdrop, it's a lot of, you know, (laughs) working against what exists to try and have people Mm -hmm. adopt that collectivism and say, if I am because we are, right? (laughs) I actually actually find it very scary because, I mean, you can see the consequences, you know, unfolding right in front of your eyes and you're thinking, "Um, guys, (laughs) there might be something else in the pipeline you don't know and you know you want to deal with this again I don't know I mean I think one of the things that you know like so my practice strong children wellness that I my co-founders Dr. Souza and Nicole Brown the the way that we've created it is once again kind of shifting where healthcare is delivered and and bringing it into community-based organizations that serve marginalized communities and I think one of the things around this is saying that if, you know, which is hard because it's always Black women trying to like fill in the <laughs> gaps, right, mm. that don't exist. But I think what we've seen are people who won't take, you know, oh, just give us some time, who won't take that for an answer and are building in programs that, you know, whether it be doula services, whether it be services like ours that are are co-locating or, or embedding or bringing healthcare to different spaces, whether it be using mobile technology to, to bring that is catered to us. Um, I think, you know, we're trying to fill in this gap, but knowing that it's piecemeal until our country decides that through legislation that that is um, that it's important enough. But mm-hmm. I hope hopefully I think what we're trying to do is build the models, show the successes and help and hopefully have evidence that's as compelling as possible mm-hmm. to, to make things. But uh, the conversation is changing. If, you know, radio is anything to go by, it's definitely changing. It's a yeah. very yeah. interesting tone. I, I only arrived here um, one year ago. Oh, so I'm a baby. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've got NPR running in the background all the time, you know, looking at Politico and, you know, um, all the other publications and, of course, the popular ones, you know, Essence, etc. just to yeah, hear what, yeah. uh, what people are saying. And um, yeah, the, the, the tone is definitely very different now. Yeah compared to, you know, when and I think that I think what's also happened is that a lot of these things may have gone like, you know, Amer there's a lot to get distracted by for Americans, right? Sure, there's a lot sure. to get and I think that what happened, it put healthcare back as a priority um on the map. But I think that um potentially also people who were disenfranchised when they felt it to that degree and felt like the disparity and the inequity and how it was how it was like literally impacting kind of a life or death situation. I think it moves both the victim to be more vocal and more active as well as those who have all, who ha- had been on the sidelines and thought they were doing stuff, but then mm-hmm. realized they weren't Oops. really yeah. doing anything. Yeah. So I think that there's good. I do think, and I want to state that because I think a lot of times it does look doom and gloom, but what I've found is that there are a number of people who are, you know, of all colors, all shades, yeah. all sexual orientations and gender identities who are really committed to health and changing the way health looks. And then also because of that diversity, ensuring that those populations get centered in yeah, the yeah. In the work. Do you miss being a practitioner? <laughs> you know, I've, I've cared for a lot of kids in a lot of different countries and a lot of families. And, you know, one thing that 
my daughter said was, mommy, do you miss being a pediatrician? I'm like, I'm always a pediatrician. <laughs> um, and I think, I think there's more pediatrics in my future. Um, but I do think that right now I'm so compelled by fixing this system so that I can practice in a space that I feel like, wow, this is, this is a space that respects mm, children's so lives that we yeah. get, that we get payment as physicians so we can continue the, the work and do it at the highest degree. One of the the biggest issues that happens in the American care system is that pediatrics, right? The reimbursement for our services is abysmally low. And so if you think about it, that is why in many um, practices, you'll see us taking care of a like 15 minute visits or 10 minute visits for kids, right? And to, to counteract the fact that we have to, we have to take care of a lot in order to keep our practices open. And you can imagine what that does to the quality of care. Mm. And that, you know, that's going to be, that's a system issue. And so if I'm taking care of kids in that kind of model, I'm not satisfied mm. and I need to fix the model and then feel more comfortable taking care of kids again. Yeah. So that, yeah. that's how I sit there, but I love my kids. I do. And I get stalked on Facebook by former patients and <laughs> coming back Aww. and I'm like, soon? <laughs> <laughs> So the most inspiring thing for me in this story is how Dr. Omolara took something as overwhelming as transforming healthcare and found a way to plug in and make a meaningful difference. But as she points out, any further meaning or sustainable change in healthcare will have to come from legislation. So systemic transformation, in other words. Up next, we take a walk down memory lane and explore what's next for her and her team. And we start with the top three memories from her childhood. Okay. Number one is I didn't do after school programming. I followed my mom. She's a visiting nurse Mm -hmm. and I was her assistant. So I had to like prepare the gauze and then put everything out when she was like going to patients and doing (laughs) all of that. So I remember (laughs) that like, and that was a huge amount of my childhood and probably the impetus for me to feel like I was already a physician at Mm -hmm. like five Mm -hmm. or four. Um, The other big thing I would say was my first birthday um, in Nigeria. And it was, I think I was seven and turning eight. And yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. And I had like all of my, all of my cousins and I was wearing some traditional outfit. um, And I think it was pink if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. And I just remember the joy that I felt like, it's like when you, when you go back, even if I, you know, I was born in Brooklyn, right? Yeah, I was not yeah. born, um, but my family, my mom is from Lagos and, you know, and I remember it being right next to her where she, in Shomolu, where her next to like where she actually lived when she was younger and um, where the party was. And I just, it's something about, I just, uh, an element of joy, yeah. like just I'm, I'm where I belong. It's so interesting because I'm from America, I'm from New York. I will oh, rep New York mm, until I... I die like mm-hmm. I am a New Yorker through and through but I there's something about being there and I just remember it was just so joyful and you would think like my cousins and I were like 
you know, we knew each other from when we were like, <laughs> like forever. Like I was living there forever. And it was just like in short periods of time, just able to connect and feel so connected. So I think that was a great childhood memory. And then I would say, honestly, you know, in my childhood, I think the other piece of this was also just um, my aunt, my aunt who passed away from breast cancer in 2011. She was my second mom. Mm. And I just have so many fond memories of like having a woman who was, you know, my mom, of course, was, of course, extremely supportive. Um, but she worked a lot. My mom was working. Like right, she was right. not playing. She was working. <laughs> and my aunt was always kind of that person who was increasingly always available and just was like always hugely a proponent of anything and everything I did. Like, you know, you know how oh, we get we get yeah. in um in conflict with our parents mm-hmm. and they're like, do this, you know. But like my aunt. I could do no wrong. And mm-hmm. she was always. Yeah, we all and need so, that auntie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so that I think really kept me going because, you know, I felt very awkward and felt like, you know, nerd and all of this stuff. And like um, having that kind of support regardless, like unconditionally, mm-hmm. um, I think was really important. Lovely. Lovely. And if you had to write a memoir, what would it be called and why? Oh my God. Really? <laughs> no, I can't answer that because there are people who are like, you should write a book and I'm and then they're gonna hear this and be like, okay, it's coming out when. So I'm like scared to actually say say that. Um gosh, I don't know. There's so much, but I think it would have, it definitely would have freedom in the title. And, you know, I don't know what the title would be, but I just feel like freedom, um, Black woman, like uh, there'd be something around that, like in the title that mm-hmm. I'd right. have to, I'd have to move. And, and I think what it would be about is really someone just learning to love themselves. I honestly feel like um, as Black women, we get very used to putting on airs, like doing as much as possible to just make sure that people value us or respect us or, you know, listen to us, like, right. you know, Mm-hmm. And we have to do contort ourselves in so many ways to do that. And I think now I'm in a space where I have the privilege because there's a lot of privilege in being able to be a physician and have the financial or social capital or even political capital. But having the moving through these elements of being awkward, doubting yourself, worrying about what other people think to now living really free and understanding that you don't have all the answers, but you have a gift and, and at least that deserves to be, to, deserves to be in the light of day and not right. hidden. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it would be something around like, like light of day sounds really cool. I don't know. Something <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What's your superpower? Strategy. I love a problem. I love uncovering, pro- like looking at people and being like, I don't know what I should do. Oh, don't, please don't ask me that question because <laughs> I will like ask you a bunch of questions and then just in- inherently go in. I love like having really difficult problems and being able to support people with ideas on how to navigate them. And I think that's why I'm a big proponent of the work that I do because I want to make sure that we stop limiting ourselves as Black women and stop saying, there's no way I can do this. And 
and giving ourselves the means, the support, the ideas, the community to be able to say, nope, this is what God has called me to do. And my only job now is just to find out exactly how I'm supposed to do it, not if. Oh, thank you so very much. <laughs> oh, that was so lovely. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, uh, so you. where can people find you? Yeah, so people can find me. I'm on the internet, um, but people can <laughs> find me. Um, we have a like quick links, um, which is at bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash Melanin Medicine Co. It has all of the links to our social media because we're on Twitter, mm-hmm. we're mm-hmm. on LinkedIn, Facebook, we're everywhere. And um, and so there, and then it also has all of our courses, our podcasts. So if you go to bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash Melanin Medicine Co., then you'll be able to see everything um, and also email us from there too. Perfect. That is all from Shades and Layers this time around. If you liked what you heard, spread the love and share the episode with your friends and family. Do visit the show notes for links to all the resources mentioned in the episode. And if you'd like to stay in touch between episodes, do visit our Instagram or Facebook page via the handle at Shades and Layers podcast, one word. Thanks for listening. And until next time, please do take good care.